I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What, you're looking something up? No, actually, it's Mick the Merck's ringing me about my Mercedes being serviced. How, I should have taken that. <laughs> <laughs> Cubes, coils and curls cascade from his mind thoughts via and through his creations, casting luminescence upon our drear and grizzled porches. He is, oh, of course... Brian Clark. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction. It was, wasn't yeah. it? I thought you said driven grizzled paunches. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be. It depends where the light's shining. Yes. Anyway, it's very nice to have you here, Brian. And we were, uh, just as you came in, discussing you've got some... Uh, because it is a form of transport, walking. Do you, do you like walking much? Is you keen a walker? I do. I like walking a lot, though I have kind of stopped doing it really much. No, mm. but uh, no, I do like walking. Yeah, and and I'm wearing these bright blue trainers that Francesco peacock wore. blue. Yeah, they are actually. I never used to wear trainers because no. I used to think that there was something slightly suspect about them. What changed? Pain. Yeah. <laughs> when you get to a certain age, yeah. you start looking for a shoe that is comfortable and yeah, has got right. a, got a degree of style. And I think you have to go for something that's brightly coloured. Maybe that's an age thing as well bright colours so you can see your feet when you walk. <laughs> but you, you said that you saw David Sylvester, one of the greatest art critics of all time, walking down the road and he was wearing trainers and it shocked you. What, what was your thoughts when you saw him in the trainers? Well, I had always kind of regarded David as like the greatest art critic of his day and he was almost unchallenged really. And I saw him in, in Westbourne Grove waiting to cross the road and wearing trainers and he was wearing a, a, a dark suit and the tie, a shirt and tie, and trainers, and he looked very kind of dandruffy and dishevelled. <laughs> That's and, what trainers do to yeah, you. Yeah, and I just thought, I'll never wear trainers. And look you at know, you now. And look at me now. Yeah, yeah. and, and I, I, you know, David's un, unfortunately died and gone. But uh, I would apologise to him, though he never knew that I actually had that thought. I don't yeah. think I ever shared that with no, him. No, and, and yeah. then it turned out, it's just, just as well, because it's a bit like the people that, you know, change your mind, prove you've got one, as you said to me once, you know, you, you there you are, and you think, well, no, and here I am now wearing the trainers. And For have, me, you, have you ever worn any multicoloured trainers? Well, I had some plimsolls with white stripes on the side of them, but I found my real problem was laces. So I like a slip-on. Because a lace is, ah. I find, can get undone. Mm, when yeah. you're making a quick getaway, you can trip yourself up. I remember slip-on plimsolls. People used to wear them at the Blitz Club. We called them Blitz Pumps. Oh. And they didn't have laces, but they did tend to make people look effeminate. And if you don't mind me saying so, I rather suspect you would look effeminate. But I used things. to go to the Blitz Club, and I used to wear those as well. 
<laughs> yeah. And I did look effeminate, very effeminate. But they were they were called Chinese pumps. You used to That's get them it. in Chinatown, and they had little bits of elastic at the, either side. That's it. Mm. And they were very, they worked very well for the neuromantic yeah. thing. But I, I was like a bit too inhibited and stuck up to wear a blitz pump. Uh, I so mean, what did you wear then? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I wore a kind of handmade lock shoes because I wanted people to know I'd made some money. And, <laughs> and, and so I, you had the price tag. The labels on. The price tag hanging off the back. <laughs> I've got a pair of lace-up boots on today, yes. but they, um, it is a bit of a struggle bending down to tie your laces. Oh, I, haven't, I haven't thought about the bending down. I was just thinking about the actual tying well, of knots. Oh, you do yeah. it yourself. Yeah, no, well, I <laughs> usually get this one of my servants, but I had to do it myself today. And well, we're talking about transport and journeys and 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 everything like that. Um, is it something you enjoy traveling? I used to. I used to enjoy traveling a lot, particularly when there was a reason for it. I never kind of got the idea of traveling for holiday or traveling for pleasure. It would, there was always a kind of purpose to it, and so I I used to travel kind of intercontinentally once a month at least and internationally a couple of times a week so I spent most of my times on aeroplane but so many of my friends are dead because they travelled so much I mean hang on this is a travel well not a travel podcast but a trans are you saying travel kills you yeah yeah <laughs> the kind of travel we do now like like uh, I, and I know a number of friends who I am quite convinced would still be alive if they had stayed at home yeah if they did stayed at home more and it was like a sort of replacement for really thinking or really doing work, I think, up to a point for me anyway. Like, you were on the move. And so I was, not always, I was always in aeroplanes, like scribbling and drawing and turning pages in sketchbooks, making ideas, only a fraction of which ever got fulfilled. But the actual movement was like the, the significant thing. And I do much less of that now. Let's say you're travelling to America and you're going to put a stained glass window into somewhere in America. How do you get it there? On the plane, <laughs> carefully. <laughs> well, they tend to be, the stained glass windows I do tend to be quite big in public buildings. I know, so how do you get them abroad? Or do you make them when you get I've there? I've never actually travelled with one, so far as I recall. Oh, so where they go on a freight on a yeah, ship? Yeah, and they come in bits, you know, like they're in panels. So they make most of my stained glass, in fact, all, all my stained glass is made in Germany and my mosaics are made in Germany and Italy and they are then transported to their ultimate destination and installed by the craftsman who travel with them. And the installation can take up to, you know, a number of months. So it, that side of the process I tend to be a bit dislocated from. So there's a lot of worry isn't there like the potter in his kiln thinking is it going to explode when I open the door so when you got when you got your glass. Yeah it's do you know I've never I've had very little incidence of damage or uh, even though glass is very fragile once it's actually ready to be installed it's very it's, it's very solid and I, I've, I've very, very little incidents over 40 years of doing projects globally, of it being in, uh, damaged or... And I have zero experience of windows being vandalised. Really? It was zero. I, there was once a, a, a window I did that birds flew into and smashed in France, and there was a window in Switzerland in a, in a spectacular, though modest in scale, uh, Cistercian Abbey and the hailstorm was 
huge, the size. I mean, I know they always say hailstone the size of golf balls, but it literally was, but it was actually being blown horizontally and it smashed through the east window that I'd done. And I loved the windows there. I was very, very happy with them. It's, it's quite modest. It's like, I think, only 10 or 12 windows. But the east window, which was an oculus, not unlike the one in your studio. That means circular for the listeners at home. An yeah. oculus. Yes. Yes. I was never quite comfortable with the design. I felt like there was a certain indolence to the design that I hadn't really come to terms with. And when it was installed, it was glaring to me. I just not pushed it enough. And then God came with his horizontal hailstone, smashed it to biblical bits. Biblical hailstone. And they asked me to replace it with his biblical hailstone. They asked me to replace it. And I, I was given then this op- the, an opportunity to replace it indolence free. And I did the, and it's 10 times better than the one that, that was there before. And so was it a hailstone or did you throw it? <laughs> yeah. I see you leaving here with a giant catapult <laughs> some years yeah. ago. Are you always absolutely happy when you're finished? No, I always know when I'm finished. I, there's never a kind of ambiguity. I always know for sure that painting's finished. Usually if there's an element in it and I'm not quite sure about it, 10 years later, I'm really sure about it that it was wrong. 20 years later, I'm, com- I'm, I'm like embarrassed by it. When you make a mistake, in, in a, when I make a mistake in a painting, it's always where it's too self-conscious and I'm not like giving it enough thought, if you know what I mean. But the best paintings are all those that you make when you're a drainpipe and you're not even conscious of being an artist. You're just like a funnel through which everything is, is just yeah. like going. Really? Because mistakes are, can be fun as well. <gasps> My dad always used to say that he really loved Theolonius Monk because he liked all the wrong notes in it. Well, yeah. is the wrong note the right note? You know, that's yeah. who's but it, to say. Yes. But it is. The, I, I did a webinar for a friend recently and uh, we were talking about this very issue and I leaned forward to say the accident is critical. And as I leant forward, a chair I was sitting on fell in bits. And so, <laughs> the accident is critical. Yeah. And, and, and it, was, it was like perfect. It was like a kind of flick of yeah. a hailstorm down on me. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but seriously, I mean, I think that be, like being an artist is like what a big part of being an artist and certainly one of the most enjoyable parts of it is actually enjoying the accident, enjoying the, the way nature just kind of... It struggles their way in, no matter what, and yeah. no matter how kind of daft or pretentious or kind of reasonable you are, yes, and trying to work something out, nature kind of something wriggles in, in. And if you let that happen, you can't, you just can't go wrong, really. You just can't go wrong. But what's your favourite way of travelling around? When you when you were travelling, is it aeroplane? Is it railways? Is it boats, cars, walking, bicycles, swimming? Yeah, so long, I like luxury. So mm. I, I think so long as it's like got an armchair involved in it or something analogous to an armchair, yeah, it'll do me. But I'm not. Uh, I think I think the actual physical act of travelling isn't an excitement. It's the destination, isn't it? It used to be. They used. To, I mean, when I first started travelling, uh, air travel was really still had an element of glamour. VIPs. Yeah, there was, yeah. This, you know, there was, <laughs> there was an element of, of glamour in it. And, you know, even in, within Europe, if you were, 
poncy enough to travel first class they used to give you champagne on your flight from London to Hamburg or London to Amsterdam you were only up there 30 minutes and you got mm. not champagne you got champagne and caviar and all that kind of stuff yeah. and it was all a little bit kind and complimentary, your room. C- complimentary all, cigar yeah and on Concord they used to give you little presents all the time mm. oh you come loaded with stuff when you exit yeah, Concord it, it's it like- was lovely I liked all that but now no matter how much you pay you're uh, you know you you're Quite recently, by which I mean a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, I was coming back from Paris and we had to, I can't remember the story, but I ended up coming on what was like a, a, what's it called, Ryanair flight or something of that sort. And the girl started pouring tea into a plastic cup for me. And I said, no, 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 I want coffee. And she took the other and she just carried on all the tea, <laughs> putting the coffee in shape you don't mind a mocha yeah. and I thought really the time has come for yeah. me to stop travelling yeah <laughs> really. this is what it's come to but it's like airport I think it's like until the technology of the airport catches up with the technology of the aircraft it's never going to be anything but miserable mm. I mean you don't really know what a terminal illness is until you go to Heathrow yeah and and then it kind of dawns on you how I mean it's about as miserable as human life gets and also of course if there's a delay in a flight you see how fragile the fabric of society is because it's only a two-hour delay and you see everything breaking down yeah people sleeping on the floor yeah fighting for fighting for food and 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 so it's the I think that destinations are great Travel isn't what it was. But there again, you see, I've discovered that in the places like Amsterdam, Paris, for instance, you could, it's quicker to drive from London door to door. And also, you don't get people sort of rummaging through your, your luggage, largely you don't, and uh, and having to take all your clothes off when you walk through the, you know, the sort of security thing, you know, um, and, and having your guns and bombs taken away. It's so humiliating, um, you know. Uh, um, and so, uh, so driving is quite a good way to get across Europe, I think. I, th- I think reflecting upon that question, I think that driving is probably the nice... I think now is of a glamorous holiday. I think it's like of motoring around... Somerset and Devon or something. In a luxury car with an armchair for a, a driver. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So you're talking about a roller or a Bentley or... Something like that It would be very nice. But I don't... But the, uh, I, I don't know. I'm a bit embarrassed about having big cars now. I used to... Like well, maybe it'll big... change like the, the trainer. Yeah, it, it could easily train, change yeah. back. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You never know. You never know which way it's going to go. I mean, yeah, I, I've got a big car that's got half electric, but the badges aren't big enough. So when I park my green credentials, aren't I want to publicise them? I want everybody to know I've got a green car. Oh, he's looking at him in his big car, but look, it's green, but the badges aren't big enough. I anticipate that all private transport or essentially will will evaporate won't it in due course and it'll just be kind of really comfortable wonderful public transport where you meet people and well the or the car will be like it was in the edwardian period or the sort of 1920s where it was the preserve of the very rich and the you know there was only one car in the street because only one person could afford one I, I remember walking along a london street one time and you and hearing somebody shouting abuse at me and uh, <laughs> look round to see it was you <laughs> out of your car window um and you travel in the back of the car i Remember that? What in the back seat? Sometimes. But still driving. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Backseat driving. Now that's something we haven't really gone into. Well, my grandfather was a fabulous front seat backseat driver. Yeah. My dad would be driving along, and I could see my dad getting more and more infuriated with my granddad sitting in the front, who would bang the dashboard. You go, 
left here <laughs> and pretend and go where he's going back there <laughs> yeah backseat drivers I think it would be quite a good idea you know you get those stick on steering wheels that children would have like on the and so you could pretend you were driving yeah to have those for backseat drivers just to keep them just like a child you know you just do that turn a steering wheel or have dual controls like you're doing a learner's car when I learned to drive the instructor used to have a second set of pedals yes that he could brake with, or I don't know if he had an accelerator, but he had a brake pedal at least. But it took me three goes to pass my driving test. On the first occasion, I rolled back on a hill start on my driving test into a panda car, police car. That's yeah. a very good start. And on the second occasion, I did something equally silly. And on the third occasion, Mr. Mascheter, my driving instructor, I was like 19 at the time, he knew that uh, because actually coming back to your early question and, and actually giving a, a, a demonstrating a certain falsehood in my response or a lack of thought and that was that in those days I used to make stained glass windows in, myself in this little studio in Preston and I used to go and actually install them for the first couple of years and and I needed to have a car in order to make a living and Mr. Mascheter was acutely aware of this and aware that I couldn't afford any more driving lessons. And his mate was the, the examiner. And he obviously did some deal with his mate because when we'd finished, the examiner said, I'm passing you, but for God's sake, find a disused airfield and practice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Those were the days. Yeah. When the studio was being built, in the very early days, and Jim and Bob were next door writing their things, and we hadn't built this bit where we recalled the music, like where the whole big band could fit, and we've gone to record the TV shows and everything. And I said, Brian, you're, you know, such a, I'm doing this little studio, and would you ever think about doing a stained glass window? You said, absolutely, no question about that. I'll do that for you. Just put in an opening, one metre across, just over three foot, and I will come and I will put a stained glass window there, because that's what a great thing. So here we are, some uh, 30, 30 one, years. two years later. That's right. And where's the stained glass window? Are you sure that was me? <laughs> because, but actually, as Jim said when we came in, it is double glazed. The opening is. Well, we yeah. had to because it, it, it was open for 10 years. It was just the, the elements were coming so in. So it's all right. It's yeah. still all right then. I yeah. mean, we, could, we can get right. No, I would, I would actually, I feel embarrassed. I'm and, sorry, I shouldn't and, have brought it up on air. Yeah. Oh yeah. well, why not? So, what's the design? Who's have you got a design? No, in he, mind? he's a stained glass bloke. Isn't oh, so you you've got no say in it. You're not a suggestion or anything. No, no. I just want to no. There's, I, so, not you, what, there's not less so Brian, what are you going to do on that that ocular? Uh, he doesn't poppies. know. <laughs> poppies. Poppies. Yeah. Poppies. Yeah. 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 Ves as vespers. Poppies. Yeah. That's what I'll do. But yeah. I think I can see. I can see. Kind. Of, is there natural light there? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing that. I remember seeing, a, now correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was in Zurich and there was a stained glass window in a church by A.R. Penck. Yes, that's right. Is it in Zurich? Yes. yes, it is. Yeah. And I yeah. remember looking at that. Yeah, There's yeah. two stained glass windows that I've spent a long time looking at them, and one of them is yours in um, in Leeds. Oh, yeah. In yeah. Is it the Victoria. Victoria Quarter. Yeah. yeah. And that, I, I sat in a coffee shop looking at that for hours. 
And the other one is the one, AR Penk one, which is fantastic. There's a Sigma Polka window in Zurich. That's yeah. it, not Penk. Yeah, a, and Sigma with, Polka. With, with the Onyx, pieces yes. of Onyx. That's and, the yeah, one I'm thinking yeah, of. Very, it, it's very kind of beguiling. You can look at that for a very long time. It's and got I a did. lot of detail. It's yeah. fantastic, isn't and it? Zurich have also got Mark Chagall's window in the Fraumünster, yeah. which is a truly remarkable stained glass window. I used to kind of... Have difficulty with Chagall. I felt that there was too much translation of painting going on in the stained glass and not quite enough engagement with the medium. But the it really the Freimonster windows in Zurich show how Cowell that observation or that engagement with his work was. It's really fantastic. Best thing of all in Zurich, in my view, in terms of architectonic art, however, is the entrance to the police station. And the interior of the vaulted entrance to the police station in Zurich, which is open to the public, and the vaulted interior of the entrance hall is painted by uh, Augusto Giacometti, the brother of Alberto, an extremely gifted family. And uh, Diego, the sculptor, Augusto, stained glass artist and mural painter, and Alberto, sculptor. And it's, the, uh, it's a series of interconnecting cogs, really, like you would find in a watch, like Switzerland, I suppose it's opposite. And uh, in, in muted, all muted warm colours around kind of uh, crimson through to burnt sienna through to kind of hard dark pinks and it is really spectacular it's one of the greatest moments of like engagement with architectural art of the of the last kind of century and a half and also yeah. i think you'll find that zurich has a very low crime rate which i would connect to the fact that the people are so happy to go into the police station and ha because they'd like to go in there to hand themselves in to have a glance yeah. momentarily pass through that portal. Yeah, I would put it down to Switzerland being a benign police state myself. <laughs> I think it's very frightening. I wouldn't commit a crime in, in Switzerland either or in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Yeah. So what were, when you passed your driving test, what, were you, what was your first car? Renault 4. Was well, it? it was actually a Hillman Imp van, which I bought off my friend Pat's dad who was a second-hand car salesman. But I didn't realise that it was necessary to put uh, a freeze deterrent in the water, in the uh, radiator. radiator. And so I never drove it, unfortunately, because it became undrivable. So, and it was, and it was, I had to borrow money to buy it. And I put it in this, in this pale blue Hillman Imp van in, in a garage somewhere and it froze up and I never was able to drive it so I had to borrow some more money to buy a Renault 4 which I did drive and they had a gear stick that pu pushes uh, yeah. in and out that's what I years. learned on my dad had yeah. a Renault yeah. 4 an orange yeah. one yeah and uh, in the 70s and that's what I learned how to drive and I, that gear stick used to make me laugh all the time yeah it's, it, it, it's funny how a gear stick can be funny but it, <laughs> but it is it is funny and, and, I, and I, had a, I had a few of them uh, like I think maybe three of them. Yeah, great. I think mm. my dad got them because he he went through a series of cheap cars, and also within those cars he used to drive extraordinarily long ways to get cheap petrol, where it was like way out of the way and he hadn't saved any money at all. But that was his, his yeah. to get the cheapest and best car and the cheapest petrol. I have no like awareness, cognizance, knowledge of what a modern car is if we went into the street now and you pointed to any car, it's very unlikely that I would be able to identify its 
breed it's yes isn't it mate like like i know i know that's the range rover outside yeah. that that one i know but i can't yet last night i was watching an episode of endeavor and it's set in 1960s Oxford, and I can identify every car in the show. That's a Ford Zephyr, that's a Zodiac. That, you know, I can go through every... So I was acutely conscious of car make when I was a teenager. I don't know why. Uh, and, I, and I take great pride in being able to identify and accurately identify without fear of getting it wrong on, in Endeavour. But I couldn't, couldn't point anyone out now. 
who was his wife at the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I think, there we go. That's so typical of a person who on snobby grounds won't get into one particular vehicle, but then themselves, <laughs> just, just look in the mirror, chum. When you're pointing a finger, just remember there are three pointing back at you. Yeah. yeah there, was a, there were two Rolls-Royces parked outside Langan's Club around that same time. Langan's uh, restaurant in Stratton Street. And uh, Bailey and I came out... <laughs> of the restaurant one night and somebody had sprayed on one rich and on the other one twats <laughs> except it wasn't twats that they were on <laughs> <laughs> did you ever have a job I always wanted a Batmobile you know I thought that'd be a good car that's got fins yeah, yeah but is there a car did you when you were a child did you think oh I'd really like everything would be alright if I had a sort of whatever the car was you know what a did you have a dream sort of thing? Again, I mean, I'm talking about Preston a lot. I only lived in Preston for a very short time, but it was obviously important because I remember in Preston walking into a garage one day and looking at a car. It was probably after my Hillman Imp had kind of exploded. But I went into it and there was a car that had a brake that was a bit like the Renault 4 gear stick. It came out of the dashboard like that. And it had a lot of equipment and it was a Peugeot. And I rather thought I could live in this Peugeot. But I don't know if I've ever even been in a Peugeot since. But do you say Peugeot? Peugeot? Is it Peugeot? Peugeot, Peugeot. Peugeot. Although, I'm pleased you said that because yeah. when I was, my same friend who had a Renault family had a Renault 4, he said, anyway, we're, we're thinking of getting one of these and showed me the brochure. And I said, ah, oh, the Pergiout. He said, no, it's not pronounced Pergiout, it's pronounced Peugeot, you know, when you're 10. So not feeling rather stupid and not wanting to be caught out, I said, oh, no, actually, my granddad owns a, per a, a pergy out garage. That's how it said. Yeah. A huge lie. <laughs> but then he went <laughs> out and myself bought, look even more stupid. He went off and bought a Renault. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. A Renault. When I was doing art history at, at arts, when I was doing foundation course, I was very fond of Paul Gorgin. And it came up in conversation in a, in a class and I pronounced it Gorgin. And there was a kind of very cruel snigger. Uh, and then a repetition of Gorgin, Gorgin. Did you hear it? Yeah. He said Gorgin, Gorgin. And I didn't know. <laughs> and I was, I kind of, it was, it's a very sad story in a way because I panicked and ran out of the class. I didn't know what I'd done and what, I, and I didn't know how to correct it. And I was only 15. And I, so to this day, I have trouble with Gorgin and, and Peugeot. Yeah. <laughs> there's, yeah. But there's always a lot of artists. <laughs> that you can quite easily get the name wrong. Most of them you know, but there's always going to be one here and there. So so we... I've got a couple of questions here. Oh, actually. sorry. I'm, on, I'm just going to ask them. Yes, please yeah, do. Sorry, you can, you can uh, answer them or not. Um, what's the best thing that ever happened to you in a bus depot? <laughs> oh, I can answer that. Great. Yeah. I, I can answer that. Yeah, I, I, I discovered modern architecture. And I, that, I, I, I'm absolutely serious about that. In Preston, again, why Preston? Always Preston. Yeah. I never talk once about a, Preston. Once in a Preston guild. Uh, but the, the, the Preston has a, a, a bus station uh, designed by Ken Seed of Building Design Partnership in the early 1960s. And it is one of the most kind of visionary uh, uh, moments of brutalist modernism in, in British architectural history. And bus stations were miserable to me in those days, particularly because I had no other means of transportation except through what was provided by bus stations. And I always seemed to be sat on my own in a damp bus station. And I was so doing one night waiting for a 
bus to Cheltenham or somewhere in Preston bus station and I realised what a masterpiece it was yeah. and I'd stopped looking at the mood and started seeing the building and I, I good tip it's it's a it's a truly wonderful building and that's the best thing that ever happened to me in a bus station that I discovered the the authority of of contemporary architecture there you are you weren't expecting that but can no, I just what a good is... what a good tip if you're in a bad mood look at the look at the architecture maybe yeah. that'll that, that'll can change especially things especially bus stations because yes. they are great places so that mm. turned out to be quite a valuable question you see you thought yes. you were saying, no, have you got a similar type well I've got um, the, well um have you ever got underneath a horse? We'll <laughs> 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 leave that anyway, thank you. Right. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, Brian. It's a great pleasure to have you here. I didn't think you were going to be taking us to Preston Bus Garage, but you have, which was a great treat. Yes, thank, uh, thank you very much for that. Thank you, Brian Clark. Thank you. <laughs> well, there goes Brian. Not travelling by air. No, certainly not. But uh, in a luxury vehicle with an armchair fitted onto the bonnet. Yes, back to his brutalist bus garage in Preston. Oh, what a dream. This podcast was produced and edited by Molly Stewart. Sound engineers with James Stewart and George Layton. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.